1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Phineas Club We're in December 2017 And this is episode 100 We're taking a look back at the good old days Hello everyone and welcome to the Phileas Club. This is a show where we get together and talk about the things that have been happening in the world over the past month. We get people from different places, different cultures, different backgrounds, and hopefully provide different views on things and uh, expand our minds and horizons. My name is Patrick Beja, and today we're going to have a different kind of show. I mean, we often do specials about one specific topic. And uh, today it's episode 100, so it's going to be even more specialer. Um, and I'm going to get to what we're going to do in just a little uh, while. But before that, I would like to introduce the wonderful people that are going to be our panel for the day. Uh, first of all, back from an incredible trip in
0: Japan, it's Turkey al Bala. How are you doing, Turkey? I'm doing great. Um the only misery in my life is that I'm going back to work tomorrow. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> you just spent like what, fifteen months in Japan? It felt like it, ne- it never ended. Uh, three weeks. Three weeks. That, that was yeah. nice. Ah, uh, it was wonderful. I had a lovely time. Saw <laughs> so a few pictures. It was great. Um, I'm, you know, and you made me miss Japan. I was there last year, and I already miss it. Um, we also have uh, the triumphant return of Tom Merritt. Well, I'm saying that you haven't been on the show for a little bit, but I'm glad, <laughs> glad you, can, you can join us today again.
2: Uh, thanks for having me back. I, I too miss Japan. It's It's been more than a year since, <laughs> since I went there, and I love that place.
1: It is great. Uh, we should do a um, Our Love for Japan uh, episode at some point. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to be maybe talking a little bit about Japan during this episode, but you will get to that. Oh, and if I... Didn't mention it, and I didn't. Um, Sturkey is joining us from Saudi Arabia, uh, for people who might not know uh, the show and his regular appearances. Uh, Tom is joining us from the U.S., the West Coast of the U.S., actually. Mm -hmm. And the third guest is uh, Paolo, who's joining us from South Africa. How's it going,
3: Paolo? Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me back on the show. I'm, I have uh, not been to Japan but uh, I'm <laughs> dying to go. You well, know, you're missing a
0: lot. You have to hurry. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's there's stuff to k- still look forward to in this life then if you haven't been to Japan. For us it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and I am in Finland and I'm also uh, very French. So that's important for the context of the show we're going to do. Um and so I'm We're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff at the end of the the episode. I have some, a few emotional things I want to say. There's also the the Patreon uh, issue, which I do want to discuss. I would have rather not have had to discuss it on the celebratory 100th episode, but, but we're going to. Um, but so what are we going to do? You know, I thought about this for a super long time and I wasn't sure what I could do that would be, uh, worthy of a, you know, 100th episode. And at the same time, know relevant to the style of the show to the theme that we're going for Um, and that could be something a little bit different and a little bit special and in the end um, you'll all tell me if you think it's a good idea but what I uh, ended up on was trying to uh, get people from very different backgrounds to tell us how things were in the quote-unquote good old days good old days meaning uh, the days of our youth of our teenage years and um so for us it's going to be probably 80s and 90s around that kind of uh, era so I-, I thought you know obviously on this show we talk a lot about current events things that uh, we like we don't like and how the world is going and how uh, where we think it's going um I think it can be useful to take a, a little bit of a step back and look back at how it was, uh, in, in years that are so far removed from our reality that they, they might as well not exist in, in this case. Um, it's, you know, 30, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so yeah, that's the idea for the show. And we're going to go, um, f- through everyone, uh, for this, uh, for this little sequence and, I think I'm going to start. But before that, uh, I just want to give a little bit of context and uh, ask uh, each of you to tell us a, a, a tiny bit about, uh, you know, where you are, where you come from, uh, how old you are, these kinds of things. So that when we react, people have a rough idea of, um, of where we're coming from. Uh, let's start maybe with uh, Tom Merritt.
2: Sure. Uh, I was born in a small town, but this sounds like it's going to go on forever, but I promise I'll keep <laughs> it brief. Uh, I was born in a small town in southern Illinois, uh, which is a state in the middle of the country, uh, right by St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, the town had 5,000 people. Uh, it had 4,000 some people when I was born. Uh, so I spent you know the first 18 years of my life uh, there, and I was born in 1970. So one of my earliest memories is President Nixon resigning and me asking uh, my, my parents, you know, why why the president was crying, which he wasn't actually crying. But my memory was that like, oh, he looks so sad. Why is everybody so upset? I think maybe my parents or at least my dad was possibly crying a little bit. Uh, and And we lived in. An an area that was very farming oriented, Uh, everybody's income either relied directly or indirectly on the economy of of farms and, and farms were in trouble in the 70s and into the 80s in that area. And at the same time, my mom was from St. Louis, which had been one of the great cities of the United States in the early 1900s and was in decline uh and it's it was one of those cities that was first feeling the effects of the decline of the inner city and that rust belt uh sort of effect even though it wasn't in the rust belt per se so that's kind of the context that i'll be coming from okay uh turkey but what about yourself
0: let's see i was born in riyadh in saudi arabia Uh, i was born at the end of uh, 76. Uh, i've been mostly in riyadh uh, raised uh, but my first four years i've actually spent about two years in pakistan and two years in the states where my dad was working oh Uh, your
1: first four years you mean when you were yes the first four
0: years of my life yeah okay Yeah, yeah when i was really young i think we came back in saudi when i was about five or six yeah around six years old uh, and this is where I've been living. Riyadh, Riyad, if, if for people don't know, is the capital of Saudi Arabia. And it's basically where most things are happening and uh, going on. And uh, for me, it's Reagan. And when you come to the U.S. and international <laughs> politics, it's Ronald Reagan. That's 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 my life story. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, that's interesting. We'll we'll get huh. to it when we uh, when we hear from you. Um, but you you lived in the U.S. for didn't you study in the U.S. for for a couple of years?
0: I thought. Uh yeah, yeah. as an adult, I've spent uh, two years in Spain and around six years in the States. Oh, I
1: didn't realize it was six years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, And finally, Paolo, um, when were you born and where are you from?
3: I was uh, born in 1984 and I was born in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. I'm from South Africa. Um, I'm 33 years old and um, my story is a bit um, different from most South Africans because I spent a lot of time growing up in and outside of South Africa based on my parents and what was going on economically in South Africa and the political turmoil. We can obviously talk about that. But yeah, so I spent some time in the Middle East and Europe and in America. And uh, most, of, most of the time, South Africa was a home base for me. But uh, I am South African um, on my passport.
1: Okay. Uh, All right. And finally, myself, I was born in 73, so I'm now, wait, 44... Am I 44? Yeah, I guess I am. (laughs) I am
2: 44. (laughs) You don't look it, Patrick. Oh,
1: thank you. You're too kind. Um, I was born in Lebanon and uh, we had to flee the the country when I was very, very young. Um, And uh, we landed in France and I've been moving around a little bit, went back to Lebanon, Cyprus for a couple of years in my teenage years and uh, lived in Japan for a few years, a little bit after that. And now I'm I'm, uh, based mostly in Finland, as we're expecting our first uh, child, Uh, but mostly I'm French and I feel French more than anything else, I would say. So that is where I am coming from. And certainly I spent my formative uh, childhood and teenage years in France. Um, And all right, so now that we have a little bit of uh, that context out of the way, let's uh, Let's see where the good old days uh, take us. And I'm going to start, I suppose, and uh, talk about... The earliest things I can remember about the, I mean, obviously this is the Phileas Club, so we're not going to be talking about the the very particular aspects of our personal lives. Although if that, you know, plays into it, then there's no reason not to talk about it. But um, if I'm talking about the state of the world and the political climate and the influences of society, I think one thing which I'm realizing has changed quite a bit is uh, the the impact and the influence that that World War II was still instilling on everything around us in the eighties, and I think maybe up to the early nineties, uh, and I think that has faded a lot uh, since then. And certainly, people are going to say, "Well, bah, of course, we know about World War II and Nazis are bad and and things like that." But I I really feel that you know when you 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 get a little bit older and you you look back at things and you start saying things like uh things have changed <laughs> which is maybe worrisome in its own way um for yourself but um it it really feels like things have changed in that regard and it's natural because things uh, as things grow uh uh farther back in the past uh, obviously they're going to influence the present less and less but When I was growing up, World War II was still the defining historical moment of European societies, at least. I don't know about others, but certainly in France, um, and I'm guessing in Germany even more so. But in France, it was World War II that was permeating everything. I mean, Nazis were the bad people in everything. It was the convenient bad guy. He was always a Nazi or the grandson of a Nazi or an old Nazi who had fled in South Africa or like it was always... And I'm talking about culture and, you know, uh, um, uh, like documentaries on TV and people talking about uh, life experiences and the war and, and the celebrations, the yearly celebrations of the end of the war and like everything... Was World War Two, in a way that I don't think people who are who haven't lived through it realize all that much. Maybe the, the best um, equivalent would be terrorism today. Uh, of course, it's a little bit more intense because it's closer to us, and and nine eleven is closer to us. But it was kind of that influence on everything: movies, uh, uh, stories, interviews conversations, debate, it was every, World War II was everywhere. It was like part of the fabric of society. Um, and, and then the other thing that I certainly remember is how defining uh, the Cold War was. But even more than that, I, I, I think World War II was more influential than the Cold War, even uh, culturally, but the turning point of the fall of the burning wall like there was a it it seems trite to say it like this but it was there was a before and an after and the the kind of hopeful carefreeness of the the post uh fall of the wall was i mean it's it's funny because i'm saying it's it was carefree and it was hopeful and it was super nice and everything was great of course if you look into it a little bit more closely it was you know 91 i think was uh the first gulf war and and it was there was conflict everywhere and that was a you know it's not like everything was actually nice but what the way i remember it was the that conflict which was um uh you know that th- that made it seem like this was going to be the state of the world forever the cold war east versus west had Evaporated in a year. Um, so, yeah, so World War II and uh, the Cold War, I think, would be the two defining things. I wonder if you guys, I mean, certainly, I'm, I'm guessing with Tom it resonates a little bit. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, for sure. Especially the 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 parts about the Cold War. I mean, the fall of the Berlin Wall uh and the the bloodless revolution of Boris Yeltsin uh deposing Mikhail Gorbachev uh is the way it was seen here anyway. Uh is what were were huge. It it felt, you know, I I don't mean to quote Jesus Jones, but it felt like waking up from history. It really did. Like it felt like, "Oh my gosh, these things we never thought would happen have happened."
1: Yeah, it felt, it felt very strange because, I mean, if you look into, if you know a little bit more about how things were going, it was clear that things were going that way for a few years once it happened. But for a lot of people, it was, it it wasn't as obvious. And when it started unraveling in, in a couple of months, it was over. It was like, it's hard to define. Um, it's hard to explain for people who haven't lived through it, but, How can we how can we find a a way of explaining it? It's almost like if it's not an exact uh, uh, analogy, but it's almost like if imagine that we found a way to counter terrorism and make terrorists not exist anymore. And we start this process. And after two months,
2: terrorism is gone. It's disappeared. And, And North Korea becomes a democracy. Yeah. Like terrorism going away is (laughs) is sort of the analogy of the Soviet Union collapsing. And the Berlin Wall is North Korea is gone. North Korea is now part of South Korea.
1: Yeah. Reunited. And and you hear and the the
2: reunification of Germany is is part of that, too, which we also Mm. didn't think would ever happen.
1: And I think it's really, again, important to point out how uh, momentous that was and how impossible it seemed a few years before. It was the state of the world. Right.
3: Yeah, East Germany
2: was there. That was it, yeah.
3: But Patrick, I think an important point is that because of your location in the world, you were very much a part of that story. It was part of what was going on in your school. It was a part of the conversation that was happening. It was a very different period than people didn't have access to internet and the ability to communicate very quickly and effectively. So in in effect, you were directly influenced by what was going on far more so than other parts of the world. So South America wouldn't be as... I mean, it would be part of the news, the daily news cycle, but it wouldn't be as prevalent as it would be for you being in France, you know? Um,
1: I mean, it's possible, but I think the the Eastern and Western Bloc, geographically, were more important for, for us in Central Europe. But the Cold War was really... I mean... The the way I would look at it was we didn't have as much the threat of nuclear annihilation um, that was an everyday present thing as much as maybe uh, it was in the U.S. But I think it it was a global thing, right? I I don't think people in other parts of the world were not uh, aware of it. Although maybe Turkey, you can answer that one for us, Um, did that have an impact on
0: you when you were yeah, growing up? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. The, the Cold War definitely had an impact on us, and I would think it had an impact on everybody all around the world. Uh, the fall, uh, the unification of Germany, the fall of the Soviet Union, and then for us, it's also have been an impact. Keep in mind, we, we were very involved in the Afghanistan war and uh, between the Mujahideen and the Soviet uh, Union. So we've always been part of the Cold War here in Saudi Arabia as the Middle East in general has always been part of the Cold War, mm-hmm. so it affected us a lot and and when you talk about unification of Germany, we had a similar something happening here in the in our region in the, in Yemen. Yemen used to be two states, and one of them was uh, a socialist or communist state, and the other one was a republic, and they were unified as one country in 1990, I believe. And so, Yeah, no, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I'm just saying, so it it's kind of reflects what Europe had with Germany. We had this here in Yemen so basically it's uh, some in some way it's uh, very similar mm.
2: and at the same time period yeah. Yeah. yeah so i guess
1: for the for the middle east probably it had an influence as well i'm guessing that asia was looking at this maybe a little bit more remotely uh, but certainly china was part of the you know it was an ally of of uh, the ussr so i'm guessing that has also uh, an influence there maybe south america wasn't as involved but they they were not you know completely
0: Removed from it either, especially with the um, proximity of the U.S. I think um, I think South America was more involved with their own revolutions that are been exactly. happening in South America. Uh, Asia, they also went through World War II, so they were coming out of it. They would know the Cold War. They had the conflict between all the countries, Japan, China, which is now resurfacing again in a very negative way, you can say. So it's it, it affects everybody in one way or another. It's just the amount of, uh, that affects people, that just differs from country to country. And, and yeah. I think I, even
1: even in South uh, America, there were proxy revolutions and influences yeah. from the US and, and Russia. Um, I mean think
2: of Cuba, particularly exactly, yeah. you know, the most affected by the fall of the Soviet Union for
3: sure. I, I think it's 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 definitely true what Turkey said. It's 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 a degree of how much it affected because right. even in South Africa it, it greatly affected how people looked at the world because on the one side the the apartheid regime that used to exist here was very much anti the, the Soviet communist ideals, but the current government that's in 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 place now was very much more communist, socialist in thinking, and there was this big. Obviously, there was it was the eighties in South Africa, so it was a very um, difficult time, and that was part of that conversation as well. We can't like the 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 ANC government was demonized as being this very russian socialist thing and the the apartheid government was seen to be allies with the us and 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 england and they were fighting in in a lot of proxy wars for them in in, in that respect and i think that happened in south america as well mm-hmm. to an extent it was not a direct influence but it was definitely influencing how the politics of the time happened here
1: and I think another aspect of this is both for World War II and the end of the Cold War and the Cold War itself, it was, I don't want to say it we're simpler times, but it was more, I mean, we had an easily defined common enemy in a way that was much more straightforward than terrorism today. Because as demonized as, uh, you know, extrem extremist uh you know Muslim extremists or are are being portrayed in the current climate there are still very many people who are trying to say well wait a second it's not that simple for, for everything and I feel like World War II as I think we tend to apply that that um Relativistic or, you know, careful vision to World War Two from now, in the sense that we get things like, you know, well, white supremacists aren't so bad after all. In that, in that respect, yes, they're wrong for this, but and you know, the Nazis walking in the street—that's an easy one. But those kinds of things were, I mean, are unimaginable when you think of it with the the prism of World War Two, because. The Nazis were the bad guys. And not just because uh, history is written by the winners, which it is, but, you know, there were concentration camps and and similarly, the situation of uh, the populations in communist regimes was objectively worse. There was more fear, more, I mean, I'm not going to redo history here, but it was easy to... To point to the bad guys, and those bad guys were, for the most part, most of the times, actually really bad. Um, and that but is, that's not,
0: but that's not the reason it was so easy. It was so easy at the time because of the media was different. You controlled the media. There was one media, one version, one story, one line, and you had that enemy as unified. Unlike today's media with the internet and satellite TV that came started with satellite TV, that's when people started to have d- diverse opinions. And then slowly we got the internet. And that's I, how things have been changed. I don't the know. The way people, even World War II, people are looking at it differently now. You have different opinions of people about World War II. Because now you have all these conspiracy theories. You have all of these uh, uh, new opinions uh, and so on. People now, well, and fake news as trump says and so on (laughs) so you have all of this people are now they don't have this one story and one theory that they follow everybody now has their own theory and it's being spread and that's where the confusion and the different opinions are coming in the older days what would you watch if you were in the mm. uk you only had bbc that's your source of news Basically, well, I'm t- I mean, I'm talking about the 80s, the, the 80s and early 90s. We had
1: more than just one channel and they, they were independent channels. And certainly it wasn't as uh, there wasn't well, as much that, as there is. Today. It depends but, where no, you, but you
0: are. The, but where yeah. are well, they're independent, but they follow one policy. They might I, not, I mean, have, and
3: it also depends where you were. Because in Europe, you may have had more than one media outlet, but in South Africa at the time, like we didn't have many options when it came to to media TV, and a lot of it was controlled. I mean, I mean, I don't know how it was in in um the Middle East, but I know for us, we didn't have the Middle the East. Middle
0: East. All the TV was controlled by the governments, and mm. the, the U.S. You had only four main channels until the CNN came in and started taking part of that away, and slowly. New channels came out. It's so what,
1: what, what do you think, Tom? Am I being uh, formatted by the media of the time to think <laughs> that Nazis were bad and that communism was yes. not the best? Uh... Yes,
2: absolutely. That's the only reason you think Nazis are right? bad.
1: I understand what you say, Turkey, and I think I the... completely agree, but I think I still think that those were clearly bad guys in a way that
2: we don't have... Today? I don't it's, know. It's, yeah, it's, 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 well, bad. I'd like to address Turkey's. Eat point about multiple opinions, uh, in, in a lot of ways, you're absolutely right. There were limited numbers. Even in the U.S., like you say, we had three main channels. NBC was for the conservatives, CBS was for the Democrats, and ABC was sort of somewhere in the middle when I was growing up. That's the way it was perceived anyway. But you also had local papers. We had a Democrat paper and a Republican paper in St. Louis. Uh, you had independent publications. You know, don't, don't de-emphasize print. Print was huge. The difference wasn't that people didn't have conspiracy theories. I I remember my uncle in 1977 giving me a pamphlet that explained why Jimmy Carter was the Antichrist and would bring about (laughs) Armageddon were he to continue as president. Uh, I mean, we had Holocaust deniers and and neo Nazis in the 80s. You just didn't have as much access. So you Mm. didn't see all of the breadth of opinions and conspiracy theories like you do now. And they couldn't get as much traction because of that. And I think Mm. that's that's a fair point, too. But uh, to Patrick's point, yeah, I mean, Nazis were very clearly bad. There was just, you know, there you would very rarely find disagreement about that, which is why you had Godwin's law, which was that any argument would eventually lead to Nazis because you could use that as a as a way to end the argument right
1: so anyway my that's when i think about the 80s and maybe 90s that's what i think about i think about yeah, how one one War, one thing
0: Patrick. just yeah. just uh, before we end this part doesn't France have a law that says you cannot glorify nazis yes and if you deny the holocaust it's against the law it's criminal yes all right so you see it's one opinion it's
1: control. <laughs> yeah, I see where you're coming from. I still think there's more than just than. I think the the events. I'm not saying the Nazis were good. They were horrible people. No, the, no, I, I what what no, no, I understand what you're saying. No, no, I completely understand what you're saying. I, I do think, however, that it, it was less fragmented. You know, it was it was a a, a giant world-ending conflict in a way where you clearly know which which side you were on. But if you were, you know, you couldn't be a communist. In, I mean, in Europe, you could, <laughs> but you couldn't be a Nazi. Uh, you couldn't be, I don't know. It's almost like the confusion between terrorism and Islam, which there is today, because that's the example I'm taking, it, it didn't really exist. There wasn't a communist country which also was the most dynamic economy capitalist economy in the world like there is china today there wasn't you know uh the the i don't all of those things that are more nuanced did not really exist back then but um and and i i understand some people will say well that's because the narrative was crafted but I don't think that's the case. I think that's because that's the situation we had evolved into, and now the situation has changed. Um, but let's go to Tom. What was your childhood like? What, what do you remember yeah. of it?
2: So I'll, I'll go a little farther back, because I, I think you covered a, a lot of, of what I would say about the 80s. And in, 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 during the 80s, it was very much a heated up Cold War. In the 70s, the Cold War felt like just a fact of life. Uh it it just ra- it rained over us all. It was it was the thing hanging behind everything we thought. I was born uh shortly before the end of the Vietnam War. So I mentioned that I, I remembered Nixon resigning. I also remember my parents watching war coverage and and until I was three sort of feeling like, yes, we're always at war. My uncle fought in world war II. My dad fought in Korea. He didn't fight. He cooked, but you know, he served during Korea. Uh, and, and now there's Vietnam. I didn't really know what Vietnam was. I just knew there was always a war. Everybody had been in a war. There was always war. War always existed. The Soviet union wanted to destroy us. They were evil. They were bad. That's, that's how I grew up. Uh, and then when I got a little older and could start to understand things at, at age six or seven, uh, the the feeling in the us was uh the the good times are over. uh we we lost the war, uh the president was corrupt and had to resign and and the hippies run everything and are ruining everything. <laughs> uh I, I i remember driving to st louis with my grandparents and my mom uh and seeing people on motorcycles. And and the whole car tensing up because we're like, are, is that Hell's Angels? Are they are they going to run us off the road? It uh, really was this kind of apocalyptic feeling that everything was ending, uh, and and the good times were over. And the economy would never get better. Uh, we're we're going to have inflation forever, uh, and and things were just bad. And and that's how I grew up thinking like, oh, it would have been nicer to have been born earlier when things were good. But now everything is broken and will stay broken. Uh, And and that was the gestalt. That was the feeling that that I grew up with until the 80s when, oddly, optimism returned uh, at the same time that things got more dangerous as the rhetoric was turned up in the
0: Cold War. Then 2017
3: came. (laughs) But isn't that a common thread um, in humanity where people always... I'd, they have this idealistic view of what the past was, even though at the time it was pretty tumult, tumultuous. You know, people always say, oh, back in the day, things were so much better. And in your instance, you're looking at it where at your stage, that that's what Trump is now saying about America. Oh, we should go back to the time when you were young. That was when America was great. Yeah, you know, well, that's, even- what, that's
2: what I'm trying to say. My... My memory of back in the day is that everything was broken and awful. The good old days don't exist for me. But then there was the 80s. Because my parents were saying, oh, back when we were young, you know, in in the 50s, Uh, things were great. Although my dad grew up in the 30s, my dad also was like, "Oh no, things were not good. Uh, We didn't have (laughs) meals sometimes. Uh, We I got so tired of beans because there was no money. uh, Because he grew up in the depression, so he didn't have that glow. There was just sort of this idea that well, it used to be better, and now it's not, and that that's how I remember it. I remember think you know, and honestly, my child, I'm not going to complain about my childhood. I had I had a wonderful childhood, but. The feelings at the time were like, yeah, everything is just going to keep getting worse. I, I don't long for the 70s to return the way some people who grew up in the 50s long for them to return. But then you get to the 80s and you were saying optimism came back. So it's not
1: always things are horrible and, and they're going to go get worse.
2: Yeah, in the '80s, I would describe the feeling as being, uh, "Oh, things may not be bad forever, but we have to, you know, have to be strong, and we have to beat the Soviet Union." And that was that was that Reagan era feeling. Uh, but at the same time, it was also everyone's out for themselves. All the hippies have now become yuppies and do drugs and spend money and greed is good. And, you know, and, and it became a more competitive dog eat dog feeling. It really wasn't until the 90s and what you were talking about earlier, Patrick, when the Berlin Wall fell and Germany reunited, and Soviet Union fell, that people were sort of stunned, like, "Wow, it, it actually did get better." We <laughs> we thought maybe it could in the eighties, but I don't think anyone really believed it. And it really, even with a war in Yugoslavia, even with you know terrorists bombing Oklahoma City, domestic terrorists, people forget happened in the United States, uh, it, it it still felt like, "Oh, but but these are bumps in what is otherwise a good road," versus. Mm. The 80s, which actually didn't have as many of those kinds of things happen uh, because of the Cold War sort of locking everything down, felt like, uh, you know, we we're on the knife's edge still. You know, when I think about the 90s, I also
1: want to mention that that rise in optimism led to, I'm sure it was more complex than this, than what I remember, but some of the most vapid times that I can think of Um I remember that thing specifically. The superstars of that day—there uh, were a few years in the '90s. The superstars were supermodels, and I'm sure everyone my age will will remember this. We, or, or maybe the, you had to be a teenager at that time to remember this. But I wasn't really interested all that much. But it was so much in the air, and all of my friends were talking about it. And there was this and cars. And we knew all of the names of the super-sexy supermodels, and it was literally idealizing, or not even idealizing, but our admiration went to the people, mostly women, who were literally paid to be pretty. That was their achievement. And I don't
2: know. This I, sounds very French to me. I don't remember really? it, quite it wasn't that. like I that being that. Yeah, I you mean,
1: supermodels were Cindy big. You don't remember Cindy and, like, all of those, I, they were, I mean, for Kelly us, Iyer,
2: Kathy Ireland. Yeah, but I remember them when I was in college, which was 88 through 92. I, f- I wonder if it's just a time, you know, like, when you're that age, <laughs> that's, everybody mm. starts looking at supermodels. It's I mean, possible, Farrah Fawcett yeah. was huge when I was a kid, too. Well, she's
1: an actress. Right. She started as a model, though. Okay, but she became an actress. And actors, yeah, so I can Cindy understand. Crawford. There's. Well, she tried. Well, yeah, I would say she qualifies. She was more not as a a,
2: successful as her right. right. and was. there were a yeah. bunch of
1: them. But I mean, you've always had models, but like they had replaced even music stars and actors. And I mean, anyway, that's that's the way I remember. You may be right.
2: Just, I also kind of dropped out of pop culture in the '90s after I got out of college, and <laughs> when and you became a, a hippie life. yourself and.
1: Went to no, I became a more government.
2: of a beatnik of the oh. yeah, but something yeah, sure. <laughs>
1: um, right, so I mean, there's t- certainly this this feeling that things got a little bit better in the, in the 90s, but I don't look on them so fondly. Maybe it's an age thing as I well. I mean, you're, you're, what,
0: you're, what became better in the 90s? We had a war here. I right. know for you guys, it was, and that's <laughs> right.
1: something that was less, uh, uh, you know, it was less world engulfing. I would say, not to make a bad pun, but...
2: um, Well, the, the difference was a war like that in the 70s would have meant the risk of a nuclear exchange. Right. And a war like that in the 90s became a local affair which was very bad locally but didn't risk worldwide devastation
1: and, and also remember as i mentioned i came from lebanon and my parents that's something that i don't quite remember but my parents when we arrived were watching the news every day recording tapes upon tapes i remember you know vhs tapes accumulating in the uh living room as they were i mean I got a little bit more emotional about this uh, r- over the past few years when I realized what ha- what happened in my mm. for, to my parents in my in my early childhood they had to flee their country we were essentially war refugees and they saw their country destroyed um so yeah. That was, I don't want to say that was, and and, uh, yeah, they were watching the news every day, rapidly, you know, glued uh, at the screen, trying to, you know, hoping against hope that things would get better. And they did, and then they got worse. And still to this day, Lebanon is not, you know, is still not better. Um, But so for me, maybe that's part of it as well. It was just, quote unquote, another local conflict.
2: Um, Well. I I think Lebanon illustrates my point very well. Uh, I remember in my social studies class in junior high, so this would have been around uh, uh, 83, uh, the social studies teacher, who was also the principal, telling us that the uh, U.S. embassy in Beirut had been bombed and that we should all go home and prepare for war like and and he and he was not this was not a controversial position parents Mm. didn't get upset for him being alarmist they're like yeah we don't know what's going to happen now yeah because that is the kind of thing that starts retaliation and war and every no one was sure whereas i mean yes a bombing now uh is not good and it's going to cause a response but it didn't mean you were going to confront the soviet union and its icbms uh, which is what it meant then we weren't sure, like are we going to start bombing russia yeah. now because because of that? It seems
1: like there it seemed like there was some kind of an inevitability. I think for you, it was the feeling that we're always at war, and that's how yeah. things work for me, we were sort of realizing, oh my god, maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be like this, and that's also why I'm so attached to the EU and economic ties. People forget, if you don't work together, economically is a great way of working together. If you don't work together, there's a chance that you might end up, you know, working against one another. And that means war. And that's why I'm so alarmed by the positions, you know, the nationalist positions that we're seeing in, in many countries right now and some people say, oh, mostly young people say, oh, you're an alarmist, whatever. And maybe that's because I was shaped by the time period I grew up in, but I really don't think so. The economic ties are incredibly important to ensure, in, on top of economic growth and you know sharing of wealth and creation of wealth and all of those, to ensure that you don't bomb the shit out of one another.
2: Yeah. I mean, World War One is a more instructive example. Because World War Two has Nazis, it tends to be like, well, yeah, we all had to go to war to beat the Nazis. Mm. There's no question. World War One is more of an example of none of these sides were the bad guy. It's just that they were all trying to protect their own interests. And so even though if they had had more cooperation – Maybe it could have been avoided. It just sort of the dominoes fell into place and like, well, I guess I have to invade that guy or while that guy's invading right. that guy, maybe I'll go over here and invade this guy and take <laughs> advantage of the situation. And and then you end up with trench warfare and and the the death of an entire generation. Um,
1: all right, let's move uh, to the Middle East and Turkey. So you mentioned the, the Gulf War in the 90s. Um, but even before we get to that, again, what are your memories of uh, maybe the 80s, I suppose?
0: Um, yeah, well, mostly uh, the 80s is what I would remember. Um, so it was still night?
1: camels and tents and stuff like that, right? Oh, and, yeah, and so definitely, yeah, definitely.
0: Definitely camels, <laughs> tents, and yeah, you know, stop spreading rumors and lies. About
2: <laughs> stop watching Lawrence of Arabia.
0: Yeah. You're French. You're not American. Don't do stuff like that. <laughs> Although you know, I'm I'm
1: joking. But this is just dumb, Patrick. I I understand that it wasn't Camel's in tents, but I don't know what at what you know stage of development the country was in the 80s, um, well, because I yeah, know how quickly it changed. So,
0: no, in the 80s, you know, the 80s was a very Interesting time because I, while I was alive when this happened, I don't really remember because I was too young. Which is in late seventy nine. I think it was the late seventy nine when we had the siege of Mecca in Saudi. Uh, for those who don't know, what the siege of Mecca is. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Explain for those
1: people, the, the 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 listeners, not not me. I absolutely know exactly what. It is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so what happened is uh, this uh, crazy guy who believed he was the Messiah or something like that, and with his followers have uh, entered the holy city of Mecca and taken over uh, the holy uh, mosque. And it was a huge thing in Saudi, and the Saudi government had to react, and they didn't know exactly how to react to this, because this was a holy land, a holy site, and... Uh, Killing or attacking or something was very uh, confusing things because it it wasn't exactly uh, something you can
3: do. And Turkey needed. Yeah, weren't weren't they firing weapons in in Mecca? Were weren't they? Did they kill people? Was it? Uh, or yeah. did they just take? Yeah, yeah, over? yeah, yeah.
0: They had they had bombs. They had. Uh, uh, guns and so on, and that's the, how they took it over. And then they uh, barricaded themselves inside with a number of uh, pilgrims and uh, those who were attending prayers uh, as hostages. But the government really didn't have the right to enter the holy city to liberate it because that means using force, which was not really something they could do without the approval of the highest authorities in uh, the religious uh, group. Uh, The short version is they did end up uh, going in there and they did liberate it. However, they had to pay a price for that, which was an agreement between the Saudi government and the religious authorities that Saudi Arabia has been becoming too liberal. And it's time that it uh, went back, took a step back and gave the religious authorities their powers back and start to control the country to be in a religious country better than it used to be.
3: Turkey that was that was what the demands what I mean correct me if I'm wrong but wasn't that the demands of the these guys who came in and took over they were they were upset about how modern no no,
0: no, no the kind of but not exactly these were more uh, a sectarian a sect type of people they believed that their own system they believe one of them was the ma- the Messiah who was supposed to come back to earth Be- Muslims believe in the messiah so it's it's it, it, they weren 't exactly on the right path, so getting the religious authorities to approve fighting them wasn 't that difficult, but the religious authorities want some a payment. In exchange for that, which was, let's we need mm. our authority backs in this country because Saudi Arabia, if if it wasn't for 1979, the siege of Mecca, most likely Saudi Arabia would be closer to what uh, the UAE is right now, Dubai and Abu Dhabi is. Uh, so that was a changing uh, time. Just uh, how liberal was the country getting? Uh, just so we get a picture well, of the let's, Well, let's, I'll give this some comparison. So mm. I wasn't there. I don't really remember that much, but uh, we're talking to, to people I know, my parents and so on. For example, we had movie theaters at the time. In Saudi. Mm. They were completely banned after that uh, time. Uh, the religious, there was no religious police per se. They didn't have authorities to arrest people or harass people who did not confirm to their uh, whatever they believed in. Uh, shops usually stayed open during prayer time, they were not forced to close during prayer. I I I heard stories that we had uh, the national we had hospitals here the like the military hospital and they had a lot of expats working there nurses and so westerners mostly and you would find the ladies walking outside without uh, just wearing normal clothing not covered up completely and exercising in public and so on so you had all of these things that we were more of an open society, accepting of others. We were still conservative, but we were accepting of others. Mm. Uh, so after 19, uh, by the 1980 and the 80s, that's when the religious authorities had regained a lot of their authority. The religious police has been established. They've been given powers where they enforced what they believed in and so on. Uh, and then you have also, you have the Gulf War, uh, Not sorry, not the Gulf War, the Afghanistan War when the soviet union invaded afghanistan and uh, the us went to war supporting the mujahideen against soviets and saudi arabia played a major part of that uh, i still remember in school, uh, it was around uh, seventh grade, eighth grade, that's when I was exposed to most of this stuff, where we were shown videos in class about the Mujahideen and their fights and their, and the death and these miracle stories about angels fighting with them and so on and how this is in Hana.
1: Like you were shown the stories about angels fighting with the Mujahideen
0: yes. in, in class? yes. Okay, yes. like was it?
1: It wasn't government were...
0: organized. It wasn't government. It was. No, but I'm uh, wondering the government... how they
1: were presented. Was it pictures? Oh, no. Was it... no, 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 no. The, the angels, stores. no,
0: the stories. The people who stand in front of the camera tell the stories. Mm. Oh, this mujahid has died. You can smell this perfume that comes out of his blood because he's been uh, <laughs> uh, uh, sacrificed his life for God and for. And so so his, on. His,
1: his blood was smelling like perfume because he was a martyr.
0: Yes, exactly. So we had all of these great stories about these and how you should, and they were encouraging people to go to become a mujahid and join the fight in Afghanistan, to go there. You would honor your family, you honor your clan, you honor and so on. And, and, and that, that was a major part of my life knowing about the Mujahideen and, and people going to fight there. I, I know a lot of people who want to fight there. there. And none of my uh, personal friends, because we were still young. By the time we reach an acceptable age to go, we, the war has already ended. But that was the situation in Saudi. So you have all of these going on. Uh, so
1: those who came back, um, how were they
0: regarded? How uh, were... Ah, they... Heroes. Heroes. They were heroes. They were uh, these great people who went and they fought the devil, which is the Soviet Union. Communism has always been seen by Islamists as the devil. It was the greater devil. It wasn't America that was the devil. It was the communists who were the devil. Because America, they were still a religious society in the view of Mm. Muslims. However, the communists, they had no religion. They had no faith. So that's basically how the situation was, and it was a very interesting time to grow uh, and to change the changes. And then you know how things have changed. Suddenly now, these days, those a lot of those people who fought are now terrorists. Uh, percentage of them are terrorists, and their ideology. Bin Laden, who was Bin Laden, was looked upon in Saudi Arabia at the time as a great hero for the Saudis. someone People looked up for it to him at mm. the time. Then he turned his back on everything and he became a terrorist. So it, it, it was a really interesting time. Uh, and uh, So what time period are we talking about? It's still the 80s. the 80s, right? Yeah, yes. th- we're still mm. in the 80s. We're still in the 80s. Uh, n- after the 80s, uh, uh, however... Within Saudi, of course, uh, as you were asking me, how developed was was it? Uh, Saudi was in general was developed in its own way. Uh, we were still building our infrastructure. We will we had these five year plans that the government kept on implementing every five years, and they budgeted a lot of money. They built a lot, and it it was a growing country at the time. What was different at the time uh, would be. If, Different from other countries, for example, Saudi was officially. A lot of products were banned in Saudi at the time, like uh, Coca Cola. We didn't have Coke here in Saudi in the eighties. We didn't have Ford cars. That seems random. Is it because no, no, it's not random. I'm just about to tell you why. Okay. Because at the time, any company that had dealings with the state of Israel was banned from Um. working in Saudi. Did you now have a that, replacement cola? Yeah, they, we had we had Pepsi. <laughs> oh, Pepsi! Really? That's I was
2: expecting it to be some local brand. Yeah.
0: Actually, there was a local brand, but it wasn't that. But it, I still remember it. it was called Kaki Cola. It's <sighs> basically Kaki is the owner of a factory that owned the right to make Coca Cola in Saudi before it was banned because Saudi ah, was here in uh, the seventies, in the sixties, seventies. Then it was banned. It just converted to that branding and he said, okay, I have the recipe, let me try and do this. Interesting. You know, yeah. it, just a quick side note,
1: there are many types of cola brands that try to capitalize on local stuff. We have like Brej Cola, which is not very popular, but it's this Brittany thing that there's a lot of, you know, identity in Brittany. <clears throat> um, yeah. it, they're, they're very common uh, for local stuff to sort of, do a weird pale copy of coca-cola and make it like and and make it into an identity uh i don't know flag or or uh strength but anyway keep going
0: no uh, yeah so we had all of these we had these very unique brands in saudi and uh, burgers we didn't have uh, mcdonald's we didn't have burger king we had a uh, something called hopper uh we had the, what uh, i don't know if it's, it's an American brand. Uh, they have different, na- to, uh, different names in the States, uh, Hardys and so on. So we had this society of cars. I said, we didn't have any Ford cars at all. We, you would see Ford cars in the streets, but they're old from the 70s, 60s, but nothing from the 80s, for example. And that changed after uh, the Gulf War, when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And that's my first war that I experienced myself. And I still remember those days of fear and shock and uh, amazement and, and so on. It, it, it was really surreal for most people in Saudi Arabia at the time. And after the the war, as a thank you for the U.S. and their support, just, I'll, I'll just get second. back to the war. I'll get back to the okay, war. Just, okay. yeah. So as a thank you for the U.S. for their support, the ban on U.S. Country, uh, companies working with Israel, the state of Israel was lifted. That's when we had McDonald's coming in, Coca-Cola and Ford. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, all right. So what were you asking? You were going to ask me about the um, war. Just um,
1: the, the fear. I mean, obviously, the proximity um, meant that you didn't know what's gonna happen, what was going to happen next. But to me, it seems like there's always wars next door. Um, to you guys, so why was it more frightful? Because
0: because this 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 wasn't presented to us as the war next door. This was presented to us as the war against us. Mm. Uh, this is and, uh, this is with the, the, the you have the stories and then you have the conspiracy theories. So the stories are that Saddam Hussein decided to invade Kuwait. Apparently, the reason, if you read that, there was a, a fight between Kuwait and Iraq about oil, where yeah, Saddam Hussein, the Iraq, has accused Kuwait of stealing oil from Iraq during the Iraqi-Iranian war and demanding that they should give him, uh, pay him for it, and so on. And there was uh, meditation uh, that the Saudi government tried to mediation. Uh, you mean mediation? Sorry, Saudi government tried to mediate between Iraq and Kuwait, and so on. We actually there was a meeting on the day just before the invasion here in Saudi Arabia between Iraq and Kuwait, trying to solve the situation. And suddenly we wake up in the morning of news that Iraq has invaded Kuwait, and everybody was complete shock. And and disbelief of what was happening, a lot of Kuwaitis uh, left the country, they came to Saudi, this is where they settled, and so on. And and you have different stories. The official story is, after Saddam took uh, Kuwait, he started massing his troops on the Saudi border because his second phase of his plan was to invade Saudi Arabia and take over the oil fields in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia. And that was supported by images, satellite images provided by the US government to the Saudi King, showing him that that the Iraq was preparing to invade Saudi Arabia next.
1: And I think, if I can interject just for a second, I think now, if you tell that story, the immediate reaction from many people would be, ah, oh, and we know how reliable those sources can
0: be, right? Ha <laughs> ha, wink, wink. Exactly. Right? So that's the that's, that's conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory was that those photos were ducted. Saddam Hussein was actually setting his troops in a defensive formation and not an offensive formation on the border. Hmm. So you have those theories there. And as so, and that's what everybody was known, that Iraq was preparing to attack Saudi to take over the eastern province. So that was a war against us. And and even those who did not believe that completely, they still had a problem with Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait because that's just the start. He might not be planning to invade Saudi now, but he might plan that in the future. If he could do it once, why wouldn't he do it again? Right. And so on. So we went, we had that war, and then the war started, and then Saddam Hussein started uh, launching all of these CUD missiles against Saudi Arabia, and specifically on Riyadh, the capital where I live. And I still remember the life that we had, and we were always the, the sirens when the missiles are launched against us. Everybody had gas masks because everybody was worried about chemical weapons being used against us. I remember my mom setting up one room and closing all the windows, blocking it, putting uh, tape on the windows and so on and everything and putting water and food supplies in the room and, and everything. And every time the sirens ring, she collects all of us, puts us in the room, locks the door, puts blankets over us and so on. And everybody's just horrified. And that's basically how we grew in, in the 90s, in the beginning of the, in the which was, I think, 1991. Mm.
1: So how was the, the, I mean, obviously, relationship to the U.S. was very positive at the time.
0: Um, uh, yeah, the relationship with the U.S. has been very positive. Mm. We've had a good relationship with the U.S. mostly, and uh, we had a good relationship with uh, Administration, the Republican administrations Ronald Reagan and george Bush senior uh, and uh, overall, the relationship between the Saudi and the u s has been always good. The only exception has been mostly obama
1: interesting, so that was the early nineties I guess we can more or less stop here uh, just I, i'm not sure how appropriate it is even to say this, but when you mention scuds, the Scud missiles, they were very yeah. emblematic of the war. But for us in in France, they've become some kind of a a jokey tool like if you If you say a joke that is super insightful and and hurtful to someone but in a funny way, like super clever, you might say, "Oh, you threw a scud his way," and that's kind <laughs> of the the legacy for us of that i mean obviously it's more than this but uh it, I, it it's funny the image that that got conjured uh, conjured in my mind uh, summoned in my mind was that one that of the 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 the, the really clever joke
0: um oh well, at the end of the day it uh, whether it's a joke or not it's still scary when it's launched against well
1: obviously obviously <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just pointing out the difference
0: in you know um, well, it, it's interesting
2: because the, the perception that was delivered to the U.S. audience at the time was that Scud missiles were largely ineffective, that they were inferior weapons uh, and, 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 and they that were, Iraq wasn't they, very good at launching them.
0: They were inferior weapons, basically because the U.S. supplied us with Patriot missiles. Right. Mm. Yeah.
3: Um, and a Patriot missile is, for those who, know, who don't know, like myself, I guess is an ineffective weapon, or?
0: No, uh, the Patriot missiles are anti-missile yeah. missiles. So. They destroy oh, the okay. Scuds, they, yeah.
3: or at least would try to, yeah. yeah. So the wrong weapon for the application, essentially.
0: No, no, they're, <clears>
1: they're very right. They they render the Scuds ineffective, because they destroy them yeah. mid-flight.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah, I understand.
0: Um... All right so actually I guess... actually just one thing I just remember this is a hilarious story in a way so at when I the first I expect it time... to be
1: horrible when you say something like
0: that <laughs> no no <coughs> so the first time uh, he the Iraq launched uh, scud missiles against us and the, we retaliated by firing patriot missiles at it however the thing is it was one scud missile And I think they launched 10 or 15 Patriot missiles at it. It was, people just heard these noises as ridiculous. So the joke that came out, and sorry if I'm offending anybody, especially ladies because people were really bothered by the US uh, deploying females as part of their deployment in Saudi Arabia in their military so they said ah uh, the reason there was so many patriot missiles launched is because there was women out there they just panicked and pressed all the buttons
2: <laughs> oh geez.
0: <laughs> wow so that was that was still like the influence
1: of the uh i I'm saying patriarchal which is an understatement society in Saudi Arabia <laughs> Uh, having the cultural look at the American forces in the country that 's really funny.
0: yeah, that was hilarious it 's ridiculous, so yeah, the women panic mm. and they press all the buttons they launched so many.
1: But ultimately, it was accepted that there were women in the army forces in the American army forces there to defend you, I guess it
0: was. Not, not, mostly, yeah, but yeah. The, there were still those who opposed it, and uh, you had uh, the terrorist attacks after the war immediately. Terrorist but attacks. Weren't they, yeah, there were terrorist attacks in, in Saudi after the war of those who said why, when the US did not uh, leave the country. Yeah. So there were opposition and there were terrorist attacks. Mm.
3: But Turkey, weren't there, uh, from my recollection, weren't there some incidences in Saudi where. Th- These military women were driving trucks and wearing short shorts because they're in the desert and, you know, they're not they're not dressed in traditional outfits. No, no, no. Short
0: shorts that 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 never happened. They were not allowed by their commanders because that was clearly not acceptable. But yes, they did drive trucks. They did um, move around that happened, but they were more uh, confined to specific areas. So they weren't really mixing a lot with the Saudi population because mostly what when they're driving around, it's around, it, within or around military bases.
3: Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: All right. Um, so that's a, a snapshot of uh, how things were. It seems really terrifying overall. It, it's, you know, those from, I, I don't know, the, those... Uh, the good times are over kind of i mean i don't know if it was good times before but it certainly sounds like things weren't great in the well
0: 80s well 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 the, the one thing what's good about the 80s and 90s which basically was life was simpler mm. how so uh people didn't worry as much they worried about international affairs they didn't worry about internally too much i think people were more relaxed uh, more open to each other Society was closer to each other. Things just were very easy. We also, we have a saying, which is, we, you've been saying it in different ways throughout this podcast. We say, uh, may we remember the days of the good people. And that's what we call them, the good people. Mm. Yeah. Because their simplicity, they were good, they were pure in heart at those days. And, we're, and basically we're, when they say that, we're. they're talking about the 70s and the 80s, specifically. Where people were simple, they were pure, pure of heart. They didn't. They were very relaxed and just enjoying and living.
1: I wonder how long we're going to have to wait until 2016 and 2017 is, <laughs> is regarded as oh, the simpler times where the people good times. were good and pure of <laughs> well, heart.
2: <laughs> that would be my argument for the 70s is that it just won't. Like I, I, I don't look back at the 70s and think, oh, people worried less. People worried more then. Uh, because, you know, if, if you were gay or smoked pot or even stud- I studied Russian, uh, you were suspect. Uh, there were so many more things. People were, even now, with all of the sturm and throng about what's going on in the world today, people are more accepting in the United States than they were in the 1970s. I remember mm. carrying the Communist Manifesto and my Russian language books around campus in 1988 worrying that people would think i was a communist <laughs> by 1991 i didn't worry about that anymore it's it was it's, it was the strangest thing <laughs> and but you
3: know Tom, you mentioned- isn't that the isn't that the current controversy in america today where the the good old days i mean not that i support that that type of thinking but the good old days are when that type of that type of type of approach was what made america great you know like this no one smoked pots and everything was illegal and like being gay was a bad thing. And like that, that, that seems to be the current rhetoric that's going on in the U S today. A,
2: there's a little bit of an undercurrent of that, uh, for, for sure. Uh, but most people don't accept all of that. Most people don't want to turn back the clock. They only want to turn back the clock for the things that don't affect them. I, I think the,
1: the, the, if they do at all, what you're getting at, Paulo is the make America great again. But the thing is, That has never been defined. It's never been said, you know, what... When was
3: America great? When was America great? Or even
1: what was making it great specifically? I mean, even if we don't look into uh, Trump uh, himself, in general, no, I don't think so. I don't think anyone has said, well, this and this and this and this is what made America great, you know? Uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but...
2: The perception I get is it's less about turning back things, but but stopping new things from from happening mm. and also letting us say what we want and act how we want. We don't. It's a lot more about political correctness, I think.
3: But a right. lot of that stuff yeah. that you're talking about is, is 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 the stuff that you're saying you didn't have the ability to do previously, like the whole gay rights and marriage and stuff in the U.S. only turned around I mean it's still got a long way to go, obviously, but it's only really started turning around recently, you know, with the Supreme Court allowing gay marriage and all that stuff and and if people are trying to stop that it may it brings to my mind not well no there
2: at least my perception and and I live in Los Angeles now, so who knows I'm, i I may have an entirely mistaken perception of what's going on in my own country, but my perception is not oh we we need to stop gay people from from being gay which is what it was when i was growing up it was like you aren't gay there isn't such a thing and if you pretend you are you're evil it's not that it's it's more Hmm. about well we don't want to have to make cakes for them
0: what you mean that that's wrong Tom? (laughs) (laughs) because as far as i know that's what we're told here well you know that's why you look on the 70s so fondly (laughs) 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 um both of you mentioned
1: uh gay gay people, and I do want to allude to uh, or not allude just mention um AIDS, which was huge in the eighties and nineties yeah. It was something that was also part of everyday life. It was a, a a concern that everyone had not just gays obviously and that was a very difficult uh thing that well, that I, uh, people what educated do
0: mean? what do you mean? What do you mean, Patrick? My understanding is AIDS was God's punishment for all the gays and sinners. Right.
1: but you know, you you, you say that if in a joking you're... manner, uh, but that was uh, the perception. I don't think so much in France, but there were some. There was some education um, that was required to to make people understand that you. It's not just the gay population that is at risk, you know, and and. Obviously, you should use protection you should use protection anytime you have uh you have sex uh unless you actually want to make babies, which is a different story but I mean wearing condoms was something that was new, and it was maybe it was because I was a teenager and even though I didn't have a lot of sex, I was hoping I would so that was a concern um it, it was it was like. The the getting used to the idea of condoms was very new for society, and the uh, <laughs> well, it
2: really wasn't. It has a long no, history. F- but no, it, of course, but, it was, but needing but, it for more than avoiding pregnancy. No, of course, it. exactly. Yes. The fact yeah. that you had to use it or you yeah.
1: might die was right. a very new idea.
3: You know, and yeah. it was. And it, in in Africa, it was also very. In the nineties, is when it really started. You know, getting out of control, and um, specifically in South Africa, they they had to do a lot of work to try and turn that perception around. Like you said, the condom, the adoption of condoms, because it also wasn't really a part of of, of society in 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 Africa. This idea that you have to use contraception because having a lot of children was a sign of being very fertile and very like, you know, strong and, and, you know, it's still a current idea of like having many kids in Africa is, is, is a beneficial thing. I mean, economically, probably not, but you know, the, this idea that has, has been changing and, and the the government has been trying to change in the minds of people is that you've got to do something to protect yourself because this is not a, A spiritual problem this is not a you know this is not something that someone's bestowed upon you you've got to do it to to yourself to protect yourself because it's a it turns into a real issue for the for the country when a large percentage of the population is infected by a virus Mm. yeah and i mean to be blunt
2: in the u.s it was well if if a woman gets pregnant that's her problem a a lot of times and aids changed that because now it became everybody's problem yeah sure was not not the pregnancy but but the virus yeah
1: um, all right. Well, let's let's uh, move on to South Africa. And let's uh, keep let's keep uh, Paolo talking. Um, <laughs> I guess for you, your childhood was the nineties. Uh, how was it back then?
3: So I was born in the eighties, in eighty four, and um, we th- that was a very difficult time in South Africa. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of um, people really pushing for the government to change externally and internally. There was a people didn't know what was going to happen in the country. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to speak from this because you have to understand uh, I'm a white South African male and I'm going to speak from that position because um, people have to understand that being in that position, obviously I've seen a lot of benefits that other people in the country don't have. And I have a, I have my point of view that I can't necessarily correlate to other people. I can have an idea, but mine is from that perspective of a white South African male. And even though I may not have benefited directly from what happened with the previous government, I have benefited indirectly. And that's part of the current uh, turmoil that's going in South Africa today is, is this, you know, current white South Africans have benefited and what does the country do to try and rectify that? And there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on there that's very important for, for change. But
1: Can you give us a, a couple of examples of how uh, pervasive and, and important uh, Apartheid was? Just, you know, to give a little bit of context for people who might not know sure. the extent of it.
3: Sure. So the Apartheid was was a government that was designed to segregate people based on race and the idea obviously I don't you know subscribe to that thinking at all and anybody who in South Africa who does is is you know thinking under a rock but the the idea was to keep people separate and segregate them based on their race and certain people in different races benefited more than those from others so South Africa is a very multinational country. We have, you know, black South Africans who are also very divided in terms of their culture and and where the region of Africa, they, they subscribe to and they're also their religion and, and some of the beliefs they have. There's also Indian South Africans, there's Muslim South Africans, we have Chinese South Africans. We also have, and I know it's a controversial word, but in South Africa it's a common term, is is colored South Africans. And that's not necessarily a derogatory word, it's just a common term people have for people who bred early on when they were here colonizing the country. And then there was this group there, and it's more prevalent in the Western Cape, where there's a a group called the colored people live in the Western Cape generally. Um, And a lot of Indian people from South Africa live on the Eastern Cape. But the government at the time segregated everybody and allocated land for different you know, races, and said, okay, you can live here, you can live here, you can't mix with this person, you can own businesses, you can own land. And obviously that um, only benefited the people who were in charge, who were generally white, or who were white. And um, as a result, um, people, um, the country, started to change, especially in the 80s. This is when... Western governments started putting a lot of pressure on South Africa to make a change, and um, even though the country was quite self-sufficient, it still needed to make the change in order to survive. Or we would have seen a uh, we would have seen a um, uh, a war, um, what do we call it? Uh, an internal war where we would have been fighting each other, and um, because of uh, I mean that was the division
1: of the country were there um economic uh blockades or you know was it was that also uh um uh, uh, the the word is escaping me but you know what was that also an issue sure embargoes embar- thank was, you yes
3: yeah there there were, there were a lot of embargoes against south africa i remember because we were traveling a lot that South Africa wasn't allowed to fly directly into a lot of Western countries like Europe and America. We had to fly via uh, an African country purely because they didn't allow um, um, South African planes to land anywhere in Europe. And um, there were other there were other economic things where we weren't allowed in sports events. We weren't allowed in. um, uh, We weren't allowed to do a lot of trading with other countries uh, like In Saudi Arabia, a lot of vehicles that existed um, in South Africa stopped being able to be available. Like Ford, I think was was one of them. They they stopped uh, supplying vehicles to South Africa because they were American. They're they're banned from everywhere. (laughs) I was going to say
2: the same thing. They are either banned or withdrew from. Yeah.
3: I mean, it wasn't it wasn't just Ford. It was Chevy, and it was all of these Americans. Yeah. Yeah manufacturers. And only now we're actually seeing some of those manufacturers return to South Africa. Um, So,
1: sorry, before we get too far from it, I really want to get examples of the types of uh, laws that were implemented for segregation. Like, did you have separate buses? Did you have... What exactly, practically are we talking about?
3: Sure. Well, you... you At at the time I was alive, I was obviously a very small child, so I didn't have to. I don't have a lot of direct memories of that. But from what I I know is that there were. buses and systems allocated to black people or people of different race. And they were generally not allowed to live in certain areas of the the city. I'm from Johannesburg. And in Johannesburg, the city was divided into certain sections that only white people could live in. Sometimes you could have a domestic worker who could reside on your property, but they need special Jesus. permission, and they would um, only be allowed... They wouldn't allow to have their husbands or their children. So, And that actually plays a lot into what is going on in the country today. The knock-on effect... Were effects there jobs lo-
1: that were forbidden?
3: Um, um, do you remember? There, there, it, like, could you go to, to say,
1: university, for example, if you were black?
3: You... You potentially could, especially towards the end of the apartheid area, but it, um, earlier you couldn't. Mm. And slowly, slowly there was this trans- transition, but it was very difficult. You know, it wasn't something that you'd be like, okay, I'm going to go to university. At that stage, a lot of black people didn't have the economic ability to even apply and pay for university education, even though it may have been available, but mm. generally it was very. It would have been very difficult for you to do that, um, and um, as a result, a lot of people who grew up in that era are fairly. It's they don't have a lot of higher level education. They don't have the ability and skills to go and apply for jobs that a lot of white people still have the opportunity today. So if you were born in the 70s like Tom, um, you might not be in a very good position financially or economically because you would have grown up in a period where it would have been very difficult to get a good education, potentially a good job. So you might be doing a very basic job, which is Mm -hmm. what the country currently has. We have a lot of people who can do very basic um, mining, uh, construction, you know, very, what's the right word, you know, um, un-skilled, most labor. unskilled labor, yes, that's it. Um, and the skilled labor is because of what happened in the past is generally favors people who have had that benefit. So mm. you find in today's world, even though we are a democratic, uh, nation, there's a lot of people who are white and in very high positions based on the past. And the current government and the, a lot of the, the, the feeling in the country is that they want to transform that. How can they go about that without doing damage to the country, right? Because what Mugabe did in Zimbabwe was basically reclaim land kick out a lot of white people, you know, and give it to to people who didn't have anything, but they didn't necessarily have the need, desire, skills to to do anything with that, and then the country suffered um, as a result. So the country in South Africa wants the transformation to happen, and there's a lot of initiatives that's happening, but um, it's a question of how do you do that with, with keeping the peace and keeping it as many people as you can, because people are going to ultimately be unhappy when you move things and take things away from others. So, um, yeah. All right. So let's
1: go back to the, to the eighties and nineties.
3: So in the eighties, um, my parents and were, were very, um, they didn't know what the future of South Africa was going to be. And they were very scared for my, me and my brother's future. And they decided that they were going to, my like, dad got their fears of violent revolutions or was yes. that? Okay. It was very possible that it was going to be a very violent revolution. There was a lot of um, protests and the apartheid government handled it very poorly in some respects, shooting into crowds and trying to control crowds because the, the, The regime at the time designed cities and parts of of the country in ways that people couldn't congregate. You know, the, the streets of Johannesburg are designed in a way that you couldn't draw mass protests. It's designed in a way that people were, you know, controlled. And as a result, a lot of people started to revolt and people didn't know what was going on and people like my parents were very worried that it was going to turn violent. So they decided to uh, make a move. And my dad got a job offer with carrier air conditioning. And uh, the job was in the Middle East. It was in Saudi Arabia. So selling air conditioning in Saudi Arabia seemed to make like a lot of sense to them. So, <laughs> so he, he, thank you so much. You should thank your dad for us. <laughs> so... We made the move to the Middle East, and in the 90s, I spent a lot of my youth in school there, and we were there for a lot of the Gulf War and that stuff, but I was still very young at the time, and we would travel to South Africa very frequently because most of my family were here, and we witnessed that transition from of power from apartheid to the ANC and the current government and the democratic country that we are today. And thankfully it was a very peaceful and that's a big part to Mandela and the people who were behind that um, and, and people like him who caused the country to do that transition peacefully. Um, and a lot of people
1: were people surprised, I guess you were expecting possibly a violent revolution. So what was the reaction when things uh, changed in a much more peaceful manner than you
3: thought? Sure. And, and like I said, for, from, from a white South African's perspective, I think a lot of people I knew were very surprised that it... It didn't turn into this. That the colored
1: people didn't uh, strangle p- and people in the street? Right.
3: That it that, that, that didn't turn violent and people right, didn't right. come and take land. And, 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 and it, was a, it wasn't an aggressive uh, takeover, whereas it turned into a much more peaceful transition. And I think something that really highlighted that is the, the um, Rugby World Cup I'm sure you guys have seen that movie with uh, Matt Damon and, and, um, Oh, Invictus. Invictus. Yeah. Um, and, and at that time when Mandela did that, it was, um, very iconic because it showed how much he wanted to bring the country together, you know, and not ostracize white from black. And he, he did a great part in trying to, to smooth that transition over, um, so that was in the 90s. Things started to look good. People started to have a little bit more hope. There was a little bit more investment. But as the government transitioned, people started to take advantage of this transition because it was a very strict regime. The country went from this very, very strict regime. I mean, to give you an example, I mean, it's a it's a pretty funny one. My, my uncle um, was uh, – he – he in the 80s, I think he had like a Playboy magazine in the back of his car and they came and arrested him. And like, you know, this type of activity in in South Africa was very frowned upon. It was a very restrictive society. A lot of movies were banned. You know, media was very controlled. And um, and coming into a new government and a new way of living where things were a lot more free, um, people started to take advantage of that. So criminal elements started to arise and people were allowed to live in areas that they weren't allowed to live in previously. And as a result, um, because the government was also in a transition phase, crime started to take off. And as crime started to get worse, people started to doubt the, the future of South Africa. And it's funny because South Africa has always been, in my lifetime, has always been on this like knife edge of, is things going to go well or is things going to go bad? My parents lived through that. I live through that today because things can be um, a bit dicey in terms of what's going on with the current government. And, and as a white South African, people would look at that and say, well, I don't know if I want to deal with that. And a lot of them would leave, unfortunately. Now, people were worried, people moved to Australia, Canada, America, but the, the governments really started to do much better. And in 2000, the, the country started growing economically and more investment started happening. And even though crime was on the rise, the, the future started looking a little bit more bright, but at this stage, I was in Europe. My my dad had gotten uh, transferred to Europe and we were I was a teenager living in Europe, which was quite good because being a teenager, you kind of want to run around. And Europe gives the people the flexibility of getting on a train, getting in a taxi. And mm. in South Africa, they didn't have that option. If you wanted to go anywhere, you'd have to. Get in a car, drive from point A to point B, it was quite far. And it was
1: unsafe, right?
3: It could be unsafe, yes. I mean, it. it, it, Sorry, go ahead. So it it also depends the way you look at it, because being, like I said, a white South African, everybody was fearful that something was going to happen. But if you were black or came from a more impoverished area, it, it was just as dangerous, but people would be walking around and taking taxis. And so it it really depends on, on what was, what cards were dealt to you. Uh, uh, Mm. My world was very fortunate where we had a car and we could go from point A to point B, Mm. but some people didn't have that luxury. It's very interesting how, how, um, I mean, you
1: have to be obviously, but you're incredibly careful about what you say and how you say it. And I think it, it, shows the Americans are going to understand this uh probably pretty well um but beyond that i think it's interesting to hear that all uh, everything you're talking about understandably is very um inward focused meaning it's really about what was the developments in south africa which were very important um and that would have absorbed the all of the um I don't know, the, the emotional energy that someone would have yes. had? But it, were it, the it outside... Was, like, was the outside world kind of... Did it disappear when things started changing? Or
3: Yeah, you can even say that today. You know, like, the South Africa is pretty far from most developed countries. And even though we are one of the most developed countries in Africa, we're kind of on our own island in terms of economic power and economic growth. And, and because of... The, the geographic location, everything that happens in Europe and America and North Korea and, you know, the Middle East is very far removed. And the current politics are so um, important to the future of everybody in the country that everybody pays a lot of attention to it. And whatever's going on in America and Trump and this and that and and the, the Soviet, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and all of that stuff that happened then – was kind of far removed, like you, like you said. I mean, it was mm. important, just like news is important, but it, it wasn't necessarily, oh, did you see what happened like here and here and here in, in Europe? It was more like w- this happened in South Africa, this happened over here, and, and uh, people right. were Right, it wasn't more- an
1: immediate, like a direct concern or impact for you guys. It was just something that was happening somewhere else.
3: Yes, I mean, obviously there was an impact, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't as concerning to people in South Africa. And especially if you're coming from a, from a, a a background where you didn 't have a lot that was not part of the conversation. Who cared what happened was going on in 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 America, like we were promised you know access to free education, we were promised to access to water, we were promised access to housing, and those were the priorities of the day for a lot of people who didn 't have much right. in the previous government so mm. Okay, sure. Like the fall of the Berlin Wall, blah blah blah, Cuba, all of that stuff that's happening. It's it's not as important as what was happening. Direct and even and today that is still the case. M- me as somebody who's who's you know, got a lot of opportunities that have been given to them, I, I'm fortunate enough to be able to look at the world and say, okay, look what's going on with Trump. But when I talk to people in South Africa, they don't they're not that interested. It's not yeah. the highlights of their conversation. They're mm. more interested in what's going on with Mugabe, and that's a much more interesting conversation, right. you know. So, but all right. Um, oh, go ahead. Finish up. So, so then going on from 2000, um, and we're now in 2010, 2000, you know, 15. Well, that's not the good old
1: days just, anymore. That's current days. But
3: yeah,
2: yeah. I don't know. For some people, it still feels like the good old days at this point. <laughs>
3: Fair enough, but it's definitely um, it's definitely uh, attributes to what's going on in the past because, as I said earlier, there's a lot of initiatives that are trying to make that change to try and get that to to benefit people and bring the country out of this poverty that it's in right now and corruption and other things that are caused by the transition are where we are right now. And it's, it's a difficult transition. It's a difficult period right now. And things could go in a very bad direction. They could go in a still. very good direction. You know, mm. still, I mean, people are always wondering because politics, you think that politics in America are interesting. Like the politics in South Africa are, are, are just as, if not more. I mean, we have oh, people fighting fighting in parliament and like getting thrown out of parliament and people who are trying to have a voice and start parties. And um, it's a very interesting time in South Africa.
1: Well, we'll have to do a a special one of these days on South Africa. Uh, We've been talking about it for a while, but we have to try and put it together. Um, I'll get back to you in in a little bit with a a question that I think is relevant. Um, But I'm going to ask that question to all of us, in conclusion, um, and I'm going to start with Tom, with everything we've said and with everything that's happening now, um, would you prefer that things were still the way they were back then, whatever back then means? Um, or do you think they're, they're better now?
2: Uh, you know, uh, this, this is something Where I Where would feel you very prefer strong. to live, maybe? Yeah. When would you I prefer would... to live? I would maybe I would prefer to live last year, Uh, (laughs) but generally speaking, things are better. And if you look, if you take a very broad view of history, things are generally getting better. Uh, And I am always of the opinion that that even if 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 we're a little bit in the down curve uh, right now compared to recent history, depending on where you are, uh, that that. Over time, things are getting better. We're, we're getting better at technology. We're getting better at food. And when there's problems with food and there's problems with climate, uh, we address those and we generally come up with something that is better. So not that there aren't problems and not that in many ways things aren't worse uh, than they were in recent history. They're generally better than they were in the 80s. They certainly, based on what you heard me say earlier, feel way better than they did in the 70s. So i I even today, I would rather live today.
1: All right. That's fair enough. Um, and I'm sure some people are going to think you're crazy on both sides of the aisle. That will not but, be a first. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Turkey, what about yourself? Would you rather... It, it seems like your answer is easier, but I'm not... Uh, we're touching on, on current event things, maybe, so I don't know how much you can <laughs> talk about it. But uh, when would you rather live between the 70s, well, 80s and now? Uh
0: Let's just say, think you live for what's for today. You don't live for yesterday. You don't live for tomorrow. You live for today. So I'm just living my life right now. And that's where I want to be. I don't, it's difficult to say if you want to live in the 70s or in the 80s. They might have been good when we were young. God knows how we would feel if we were in our 40s or 50s. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's that's Yeah, true. well said. Um, And so... Uh Paolo you seemed like you were painting a a pretty dreadful picture of <laughs> the entire last <laughs> 30 years so i i'm i'm fearing uh, you know i'm not sure i should ask you the question but i'm going to anyway what about you
3: Well i i'll i'll give you a good um what's happened in my life cuz i was i've lived in the U.S. for a while as, as well. I went to university in the U.S. I got a job in the U.S. And, and life was pretty good there. And, and I decided to move back to South Africa because I really believe in the country. I really believe not that there's anything wrong with the U.S. The U.S. is great. People in America are great. But I, I feel oh, like life... you have life to say that
1: or they invade you. <laughs> Although they don't do that anymore <laughs> yeah. so
3: much. We've got to make I'm friends where we can. <laughs> <laughs> but life here is just there's so much hope there's so much possibility and um I really believe in the in the future of South Africa today previously I couldn't say that you know I think if I was coming out of the 90s or the or the 80s specifically it would have been difficult to say that but I I really believe that it's going to be a a, a very strong and and, and well built country you know in terms of people and and the approach other people have to one another that's one of the biggest draws for me in south africa is is what's going on the conversations that are going on even though it's difficult to have conversations about race and racism and it, it, it's wonderful to be a part of that and part of that story and i hope it it all comes together really well i believe it will but uh yeah i think today is is the day to be living in
1: excellent Uh, That's that's a surprisingly hopeful view. So thank you for lifting my spirits. (laughs) I didn't think you were gonna go there. Um, For me, I would say I I think that the the maybe it's because I work a lot with technology, but I think that we're we're misplacing our worries. We think that, and I mean, things are not ideal right now. Um, There's a lot of division and there's a lot of uh, fear regardless of how it takes form. Um but I think those aren't really the the, the the main cause. Those are more symptoms. And the causes are found in what you were saying in the beginning of the episode, Turkey, in the you know, emergence of giving a voice to everyone. And that's what we're learning to deal with now. Um because of technology and the internet and the prevalence of every opinion which means you know for now we just give equal value to all of them or near equal value and that's something that we have to learn how to deal with you know sort and understand and and i think that we will i think if we don't it might be more problematic than even it is today um but i do think that we are it is also in a in in things you know In in a way that some people have been voicing here, um, particularly on the conservative end of the, you know, and nationalistic end of, of the spectrum, that those opinions were always there, but we didn't listen to them or care about them. And that can spell disaster, uh, if you ignore those too much. And and the other issue is, you know, inequality is certainly a problem and, and inequality is certainly part of that division that we're seeing now um, with, with some being left behind in the economic growth that we've seen with technology. So th- all of those issues, I think, are being voiced now and surfaced in a way that seems bad but is much better than than the way they might have surfaced a few decades ago um so i'm wondering to put things clearly i'm wondering if the the issues we're having now aren't a mild revolution of some kind or or you know a civil conflict um that is taking that is playing out in the media and in the political arena instead of the streets and, you know, having a more grim outcome. So ultimately, I do think that we're going to understand the problems that we're faced with and and hopefully overcome them in what will have been, when everything is said and done, a fairly... Um, mild uh uh, upset of the of the system um by comparison to the other upsets of the systems we've seen in the past so um,
2: treating a wound always hurts a lot while you're treating it but it's better than letting it fester and losing the whole limb right And, and the way we're treating
1: it now as horrifying as it seems to some i think And, and I mean, of course, I had this idea in the back of my head because that's the way I look at the world. And maybe some people are going to say, oh, this is not the way it is. And you're, you have too much of a rosy outlook on things. And, but I really don't think so. But I, I really think that looking at our, our earlier times together now, it, it, it's not, I'm not trying to say things were horrible before. It's just, Things now might be a little bit more mild than the the constant bombarding of Twitter makes it. You know, it's and, and I really didn't want to make this about today. It's really about what it was before. But I think if you read the Twitter feeds of some people, you you create a certain image image of them. And I have one person specifically in my in my mind um who, who is always Extremely upset about the way things are going. I'm not going to say if it's an American, a French person, or but actually, there are a couple of people and If you only read their Twitter feed, you think that they are that person that is portrayed in their concerns expressed over social media, and then you meet them and they're a normal person mm. you know and and I do think that this is the kind of things that we're learning to deal with. And that we're learning to understand. And I have a, a, a an analogy that's coming to me that has nothing to do with any of this, but I think that will speak to some people. And it has to, gay, to do, as usual, with video games um, <laughs> and with World of Warcraft, um, which, again, might speak to a lot of people because a, a large part of the audience knows that game. Um, in World of Warcraft, when we first started playing it, it was extremely uh all-encompassing it was kind of becoming a, a pastime that would um that would become your only pastime and you would we played for months and years and after a couple of years we sometimes would realize that we would log into the game every day and not really have a lot of things to do and there's a moment in your life as a gamer when you understand how to behave towards your, your um, enjoyment of that game where you realize, oh, wait, I don't have to log in every day. Like, if I don't have anything to do in that game, I don't have to play it. And, and that's something that seems asinine to people who don't know the game. But I'm certain that every person who has played that game for uh, you know a significant amount of time will know what I'm talking about will realize oh yeah I know there there was that moment when I, I I stopped playing every day because I realized oh it's fine if I don't log in and and do those things that I I think I have to do or that I don't even enjoy doing anymore and and so there was the point is there we needed a few years 200 or a few months in the case of that very simple thing, your relationship with that piece of entertainment, we needed a few months to understand how to behave towards it. And I think the change that the internet and social media and, and the, um, overwhelming amount of information has on society is obviously a lot bigger. So it's going to take a few years for us to understand how to behave in that context. But I think we can, you know, we've done it before in society, things have changed and things that we have adapted. And I think if anything, we're very good at adapting and, and at understanding things and are at at changing our behavior to adapt to the way things are. So yeah, very long winded answer to say I think it's probably gonna be okay.
0: I couldn't have just said
2: that. Probably, probably. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think of the analogy for Blizzard in this uh, that that can come in and put some patches on and make things more fun.
1: I've thought, I, you know, that's another thing I've often thought about. How would game designers uh, think of solving the problems of society? I think there would be a lot of uh, interesting ideas there, um, and also the fact that. In, in the virtual worlds that they create, if they change uh, uh, something in a patch, they change the world. It would be, anyway, that's a completely different uh, <laughs> line of thinking. But yeah, so things are okay. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, it's still, I still get very angry at things the way they are. Um, and we all do, but it's the process.
0: That's okay, the way this, things What, Oh. What if we, we we are a game? We are inside a game and we're being patched every <laughs> now and then.
2: Well, uh, it,
1: it's I
0: hard think... to master. It's just not easy to play,
2: Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> um, did anyone else want to add
1: anything before we move on to uh, a couple of other comments? I guess we're good. Um, so... Before I conclude the the thing, uh, the Patreon issues, which I did want to mention, uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I really would have preferred not to have to talk about this on the uh, celebratory 100th episode of the show. Um, But Patreon has announced a couple of days ago that they are changing the structure of fees and uh, how they are charged in their system. Um, And it's been a very controversial at this stage, it's, it's They said they were going to do it. It's not been implemented yet. The core issue is that they're shifting, they're they're changing the fees and shifting them to patrons rather than creators. Um, there there's a lot of speculation around it. I'm not going to get into it. Who why they're doing what? I personally. I have a certain trust in the company so I don't think there there's malicious intent uh behind that decision but regardless whatever you believe you're entitled to that um but the issue is they are uh putting a significant charge for fees on um create uh, on patrons and uh separating every individual pledge which creates a result of madness that is uh, upsetting a lot of people. And so things have not been implemented yet. And there has been such a, um, a, a strong reaction, we can say, to that uh, announcement that I, I think they're going to have to uh, change the way they're, they're doing it, at least if not walk it back. So we'll see in a few days have, how things evolve for now. um I would say there are there isn't a lot we can do. Um, it's going to be implemented on the 18th if it is implemented. What I do say is um, if you're really uncomfortable with that change, you can uh, subtract about 40 cents from your pledge and it won't impact the way I do uh, rewards. So you'll get your reward, just subtract uh, 40 cents or so for from your pledge and you won't be impacted. Um, but I suspect that in the next couple of days, we're going to have a reaction from Patreon and things might um, change a little bit. I have a post and I think every creator has a post on their Patreon explaining exactly in detail what's happening and um, what we can do about it. I've uh, answered a few questions, so there's a lot of details uh, in there. But, um, yeah, I, I would, for now I'm in a wait and see, uh, pattern and if things are not satisfactory, we'll think about what to do in the next, uh, few weeks and, and the next, uh, yeah, in the next few weeks. But for now it's really wait and see, let's not panic. As I often say, let's not, you know, start screaming and flailing our arms around and, and run around in panic, um, So, yeah, it's I I know I'm not being very precise, but I'm pretty sure things are still in flux. So we'll see how they evolve. Um, But I didn't want to address it. Right, Tom, things might not are not stuck.
2: Yeah, no, uh, Jack Conti tweeted on Friday that he has been talking to a lot of creators and doing a lot of thinking and he'll be back on after the weekend sometime next week with something else. So we'll see what that is. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily be a change, but he's got more thoughts. Yeah.
1: So we'll we'll see what happens. Um again, I think my um there are, there are other people, different people are saying we should go to a monthly model which has its own issues, which I explain in my post. Um I really think for me the, the best way to approach this is to subtract if you I mean don't do it yet, maybe, but uh um subtract forty cents or so from your pledge, forty to fifty cents. Um, from your pledge, even at the one dollar, and the one dollar thing is the is the issue.
2: Well, you can't go below a dollar, yeah. So, what you could do there as an alternative is to say up your pledge to two dollars with a maximum per month,
1: right? So that if Which, pa-
2: if Patrick does more than one episode in a month, you'd only get charged the two dollars. Uh, otherwise there's really not a whole lot of other options yeah
1: which has its own set of issues uh for a number of reasons so anyway
2: yeah you don't always do more than one episode a month
1: yeah well i actually i yeah i don't always but we'll see in the next few days if it's important to you and i understand that it is um keep an eye on the patreon and things are gonna um we'll we'll keep you informed um so yeah i wanted to address that And, uh, the last thing I will say is, um, a hundred episodes. So that is kind of a pretty momentous thing. Oh, thank you, Tom. You're very kind. Um, you know, this show is, it's, it's very special to me. Um, it's a difficult show to put together, probably the most difficult show (laughs) that I do. Um, and it's not a show for, for everyone, um, the audience is not enormous. I like to think that it's, you know, the best people that listen to this show, not, not the others, the <laughs> one we don't like. Um, but um, it's not a show for everyone. It's a difficult show to put together. I think it's a, um, an important show. And the fact that people listen to it at all is kind of a um, wonderful gift to me every time. And the fact that you express... Your uh interest and love for the show is really a a something precious that I, I, I love all of my shows. I say this sometimes I love all, all of my shows, but this one really has a special place in my heart and it not only because I think it does something important, which it does in in the way i I look at the world, but also because it helps me personally, and that's probably why I do most of the shows because i get benefit from them but it helps me um understand all of these issues uh, a little bit better and if there's one thing we we should all agree that is missing is the the taking the time and making the effort to try and understand things and um and it certainly helps me in that regard so i guess what i'm trying to say is i'm incredibly grateful and thankful that um your support not just financial um but financial as well of course but your support has allowed me and pushed me to do a hundred episodes and the show has changed quite a bit i think over the last the last hundred episodes but it's gotten consistently better and i'm hoping that over the next hundred episodes i will i i'm still not I'm never happy with what I do, but I'm still not very happy with how I do the show. I think I can improve many things, but um, I'm very glad that I have all of you um, in the audience uh, along with me on that uh, journey to to making things better. And I'm incredibly thankful to all of the co-hosts, the many co-hosts that join me every episode, including uh, my my, uh, most... uh, (laughs) often appearing companion turkey but also everyone else i mean paulo and tom and uh everyone and you know eric and wendy and marlene and uh you know uh uh, i i don't want to (laughs) forget anyone but matias and the ones that make everyone is incredibly uh, uh, uh i'm very thankful that's i'll end it at that uh so thank you for listening to the episode. And uh, before, we, before we leave, as always, uh, can you guys please let us know where we can find you if we want more of your wisdom? Uh, let's start with Turkey.
0: All right. So if you just want to oh, hear he fell uh, asleep. all, all <laughs> of my crap, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. Uh, at Turkey double
1: a. Thank you, Turkey. What about you, Tom?
2: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Tom Merritt and finding the silly Twitter name, Ace Detect, A-C-E-D-T-E-C-T.
3: Paolo. You can find me on Twitter at Josie Paolo. That's short for Johannesburg. So J-O-Z-I-P-A-U-L-O. And, uh, congratulations on a hundred episodes. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks. Um,
1: I didn't think we were going to get this far when i started <laughs> um so for me it's not patrick on twitter and facebook and uh, you can find the show at frenchspin.com um if you haven't listened to the special life as a woman uh, i recommend that one the 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 one that came after episode 99 is also a pretty good one um i might try and do a uh 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 survey on patreon to to see which episodes you like the best from this year so we'll um we'll see what we do if if i do that so we can do a special post with you know shows we might recommend to new listeners and stuff like that i'd love to have your input uh, on all of this so we'll see if i do that but um so that's yeah that's going to be it for this episode uh we probably will be back with a regular episode later in the in the month we'll see what happens um but either way thanks for listening and uh thank you so much for being with us for a hundred episodes talk to you soon